The good news is we are here for one service. The bad news is very few of you know this, but I, t- I actually preached two different sermons with two services. So I've combined those two sermons into one. So we'll be here for a while. Just kidding. Turn in your Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 16. We'll be in verses 17 to 23 this morning as we near the end of Paul's letter to the Romans. I'm going to read this passage to you this morning and make a couple just kind of background remarks and then we will kind of jump into the, the content of what we want to look at. Hear the word of the Lord from the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 16, beginning in verse 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good, and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. Now, a couple of preliminary remarks. I want us to jump to verse 21 to, to 23 this morning as we begin. The content of what we're going to look at in this sermon is verses 17 to 20. But if you look here in verses 21 to 23, you'll notice that that Paul sends greetings from eight of his companions who are there with him as he writes. Particularly, one of interest that might catch your eye would be Timothy. We know Timothy well, right? We've heard of Timothy, and we have First and Second Second Timothy. We know him pretty well. But another one who may catch your eye is in verse 22 when he says, "I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord." What does that mean? Did Paul write it or did Tertius write it? Well, Tertius is what is known as an amanuensis, a, a secretary, a, a scribe, one who penned the letter. And so what we have here is very common in ancient days where Paul would dictate the letter and Tertius penned the letter. So it is written by Paul, dictated by Paul, Tertius penned the letter and he sends his greeting. He kind of gets his word in there as he sends the letter out. And the, the other background question that you may be curious about is that if you look and we stopped reading at verse 23 and look at what your next verse is in scripture it could be different for you some of you may go from verse 23 to verse 25 some of you may have a verse 24 but it might be in brackets if you have the king james version you just have verse 24 and that's it no brackets no footnote So what is going on with Romans 16, verse 24? Why is it like that? Well, what's going on here is that manuscripts earlier than the 6th century do not contain verse 24. 
And so the earliest Greek manuscripts don't have it, and so they, that's why it's noted. Some of your Bibles don't have it at all. The ESV does not have it. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, the New American Standard and a couple others do have it, but it's in brackets. My ESV and yours and other, other manuscripts that, or translations that don't have it typically have a footnote, and at the bottom, mine says, uh, a footnote, some manuscripts insert verse 24, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Now, if you look up at verse 20, what does the end of verse 20 say? The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, right? It says the same thing. So what we see is in earlier manuscripts, verse 24 is not there. Some of the other manuscripts, as they get later, we see verse 24 added, and most oftentimes where 24 is added, that phrase in verse 20 is not found. So it appears what has happened as it went on, later manuscripts, a scribe either moved it or made a mistake and put it there, and it just got repeated. And so the question then lies here. Does that cause us to doubt Scripture? Does that cause us to doubt the integrity of Scripture? And that question is absolutely not. If anything, having this in your translation, you remember this is an English translation of the Greek text, having this in your translation should bolster, it should strengthen, it should affirm your trust in the translators because they are being meticulous to make sure that what they have translated is correct, that it is based on the best and the earliest Greek manuscripts that we have. It shows integrity among the translators. This is not an issue of King James. Some people would make this, well, the King James has this and no others don't. That's not even true. It's not an issue of King James versus the others. Does King James have it? Yes. Are there other translations that have it? Yes. So it's not an issue of this translation versus the rest. It is just an issue of translators of recent, once they had the earlier manuscripts, have looked and seen some inconsistencies on what is there and where it is placed, and they're making sure it is correct. Now, the other thing you need to understand is you look, and it says the exact same thing as verse 20. It does not change any meaning, any content, any doctrine in the text. So it does not affect the meaning of the text. It is simply, again, translators making sure that it is right, and we can rest in that. So let's look at verse 17 to 20 in our time together this morning. In verse 17 to 20, what we're going to do is we're going to look at a couple of things. First, we're going to look at Paul's call to watch out. He begins by saying, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out. And then we're going to look at the last portion of the sermon at Paul's instructions to be innocent of what is evil and wise as to what is good. You know, there's a trampoline park up in Lexington, and several years back, we, we took the, the students up there and, and goofed off, and if you've never been to a trampoline park, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's an indoor park, an indoor facility that has trampolines everywhere. You have walkways where you're walking on normal flooring, but outside of that, it's all trampolines. Well, some very intelligent individual, creative individual, decided to not only have a trampoline park where you can jump up and down, but to incorporate trampoline jumping and dodgeball. And so this is a great idea. Um, you have a kind of an arena for dodgeball that's uh, on trampolines, dodgeballs everywhere, and then even the sides are trampolines. So you can run and jump off the side and rock it across, and you're trying to hit people with dodgeballs all the same kind. 
this is a dream come true for me as a child, and so as an adult, I still enjoy it. As a youth pastor, you need to know this about youth pastors, youth pastors love these opportunities like paintball and dodgeball because you get to inflict a slight amount of pain on kids who have inflicted pain on you in some way in the past. And so when somebody says, let's play dodgeball with teenagers, Matt is going to be like, yeah, I'm in, right? He's just going to do it. Well, so we're playing dodgeball up there. I'm just having a great time, loving it, trying to hit kids and, and, I'm grabbing balls, you know, I'm slinging them, slinging them, slinging them. Well, there was one thing I didn't remember to do. That's what Paul tells us to do. I didn't watch out for kids trying to hit me. Now, I'm older. I never had a great arm. I thought I had, but I didn't. There are a couple of our teenagers who have really, really strong arms. And I wasn't watching out for them. And one kid who will remain unnamed, it may be Riley Crawford, when I was not looking, he slung a dodgeball so fast that I think the dodgeball wrapped all the way around my head. I mean, he hit me in the face, and I didn't. I saw just darkness and then light. And I went and sat down. You know, your eyes are watering. It's like, I'm not crying, you know. I didn't watch out. I didn't watch out. I was so much on the offensive. I was so much enjoying my time. I was so much thinking about hitting other people with dodgeballs that I didn't watch out. And Paul says here in verse 17, he, he, he's been on the offensive. He's been talking about sound doctrine. He's been talking about what it looks like to live for Christ all throughout the letter. And he comes to verse 17. He's greeted people. He's encouraged them. And he says, I appeal to you, brothers, watch out. Watch out. There, there's something you need to look out for. There's something you need to be mindful of. I, I know you're walking in faithfulness. I know you love the Lord. I know you're clinging to sound doctrine. I know that, I, that I've said to you that I'm satisfied because you're maturing. You can even, even instruct one another. You're walking in love, but you need to watch out. Don't take your eyes off the dangers that lie around you. And so Paul says to, to watch out for those, specifically verse 17, what do we watch out for? We watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, he says. Watch out for them. We are to beware of them. We are to keep an eye out for them. We are to take note of them, specifically those who would seek to cause divisions and those who would seek to undermine sound biblical doctrine. This is a, a common warning in Scripture. This is not something that we come across, and most of you know this well, that, that this is something we hear over and over in Scripture, to watch out for those who would undermine the, the doctrine, the integrity, the unity of the body of believers. Jesus says in, in Matthew 7, verse 15 to 16, He said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Be, beware of them. Watch out for them. Appearance is not everything. They may look the part, but they are not the part. You need to watch and observe their fruits. What is the, the product? What is the result of their ministry, of their time, of their teaching, of their lives? Take note. They may look nice on the outside, but the product of their fruit is divisiveness, disunity, false doctrine. In 1 Timothy Paul instructs Timothy, verses 1-3, one, one, he instructs Timothy, he says, Remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. 
It's the role of, of the pastor to provide oversight, the responsibility that we have to ensure that false doctrine is not taught in our midst. You heard Colossians 2.8. See to it, Paul says, that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of this world and not according to Christ. He goes on to explain and to talk about the beauty of the gospel and, and Christ's work on the cross, but, but that follows him saying, don't let anyone deceive you. Don't let anyone take you captive. Don't let the elemental teachings, the spirits of the world, the human traditions cause you to depart from good, clean, uh, biblically sound doctrine. When, when Paul's speaking to the elders in Ephesus, in Acts chapter 20, verse 28 to 30, he gives them a similar warning as what Christ did in Matthew 7. Paul said, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know, here's, listen to what he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. Paul warns the elders. He warns them that there will indeed be people who come in and try to undermine the teaching of the church. They try to undermine sound doctrine. They bring division among them. What Paul does in the remainder of verse 17 and then in verse 18 is... Thankfully for us, he gives us somewhat of an anatomy of the false teacher. An anatomy of the false teacher with three different statements, three descriptions of what or who we are to watch out for. The first one is in verse 17, where Paul describes what they do. Look at, look at what they do. He says to beware of those who, what do they do? They cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you have been taught. This word for divisions is used only elsewhere in Galatians 5.20. That's the only other time it's used in Scripture. And in Galatians 5.20, it is amongst the list of deeds of the flesh. What characterizes the, the unbeliever, it, it means to cause dissension. It means to cause two people who were once together to be standing apart from one another, to separate, to divide. Now, we think about this and we think, why, why is this so important? We don't have to think very long before we recall the words of Christ. We recall in John 13, 35 that, that unity among God's people is critical. It's of utmost importance to our Lord. And for us as his people, we need to remember that the things that are valuable to Christ must be valuable to us. The things that are important to him are important to us. So unity must be important. To us, We must be aware and watch out for those who would divide and bring dissension among us. The second thing they do is they, they create obstacles. They create obstacles. It's a, a word in the New Testament that's used most commonly within the context of those who would create obstacles causing people to fall away from the gospel, to fall away from the true gospel, from sound belief, from doctrinal integrity. He's concerned with those who would come in and lead you to trust in a false gospel. 
You, you think of the ones in, in Galatians, right? The, the church of Galatia where Paul addresses them and calls them or, or writes them and says, who has caused you, who has brought this false doctrine among you? Why are you following after a false doctrine? We would certainly understand that and elsewhere in Scripture, the whole issue of legalism, that it would create an obstacle to following Christ, create an obstacle by, to trusting Christ by faith alone. We see Jesus confronting the scribes and the Pharisees for their legalism in Matthew 23, 4, where Jesus describes them, the scribes and the Pharisees, as those who, he says, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders. It's that picture of, of them putting together this, this burdensome, heavy weight and putting it on your shoulders that you're walking around hunched over carrying the burden of legalism, an obstacle that's been created, an obstacle that's been laid upon your back. Now the contrast to that is Christ in, in Matthew eleven twenty eight. What does he say? His invitation of Christ is, come to me. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, Jesus says. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, one, one thing you're going to ask is, is the teaching that you hear, is it oppressive? Is it weighing you down with legalism? Is it weighing you down with guilt? Or is it bringing grace to your life? Is it speaking peace into your life? Is it saying to you to trust Christ and to look to Christ and to rest in Christ? Is it leading you to the one who says, My yoke is easy, my burden is light. Come to me, you will find rest for your souls, I am gentle and lowly in heart. Or is it leading you to depend on yourself? Is it leading you to bear your own burden? Is it leading you to walk in guilt and the weight of sin? So the first thing he says is what they do. The second thing he says in verse 18 is he tells us who they are. He gives us a, a picture of who they are. Look at verse 18, the first section. It says that such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but who? Their own appetites. They, they serve their, their own appetites. The, these individuals may claim to be believers. They, they may be involved in ministry. But they do not serve the Lord. Paul says you'll know them because they serve themselves. They serve their own appetites. Their own bellies is another way that it's interpreted. Their own desires. That is their goal is to, to serve their own appetites, their own desires. Paul said in Philippians 3, 18, 19, a similar thing, a teaching. It gives us a little more clarity on what this looks like. He says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Right? He says, I want you to imitate me. Paul knows that he is living a life in, of integrity. He is living a life of faithfulness to the Lord. But he says, For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, Paul says, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame 
with minds set on earthly things. These are, these are the same individuals Paul is talking about in Romans to look out for, ones who serve their own appetites. They don't serve the Lord. Paul says, follow, follow me and those that set an example that you have in us because we are serving the Lord. We are walking in faithfulness. We are standing in sound doctrine. But you need to know there are some who, who don't serve the Lord. Their God is their belly. Their God is their own appetites, their own cravings, their own desires. Do you, do you recall in, in Numbers 11, you remember the, the people in the wilderness and the quail come upon them, all the quail, and the people just rake it in, and they bring it in, and it says that even while quail was still in their teeth, right? I mean, they, they were just craving it. They were wanting it. They weren't trusting God's provision. They were craving it, and, and the place in which this, this comes to be known as graves of craving, where people perish, and it comes to be called graves of craving. It is similar. These people Paul is warning us about, or that here he is warning us here about, is, is, are the people who their God is their own belly, their own cravings, their own desires. And he says that their glory is in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. The, these people, who are they? They are the ones in our day who I would say they're seeking to build a platform for themselves. They're more concerned about building a brand and promoting that brand than they are about building the kingdom of God and promoting and advancing the gospel. And that's a, that's a really quick way you can discern in our day. Is the theme of their song themselves and their own name, their own glory, their own brand, or is it the name of Christ? Remember, Jesus said what in Matthew 7? You know them by their fruit. It is the fruit of their ministry, is the fruit of their life, is it making you want to buy their books? Is it making you want to tell everybody about them and about what a great person they are and a great speaker they are and a great intellectual they are? Or is it making you want to exalt your God? Is it making you want to lift high the name of Christ? You will know them by their fruit. Paul gives us a list of who they are. So he tells us what they do, he tells us who they are, and then third, in the last portion of verse 18, he tells us how they operate. How do they operate? What does he say? They operate by smooth talk and flattery. Using smooth talk and flattery, what do they do? They, they deceive the hearts of the naive. I, I, would, I would say that they are probably the, the theological sugar coaters that are more concerned with tickling your ears than they are with pricking your heart with the truth of the gospel. They're more concerned with making you feel good about yourself. They're more concerned with making sure that you're not offended than they are with proclaiming the truth of God's word before you. And so in, in the effort to do that, they deceive with their words. They, they have smooth talk. They flatter, with, they flatter you. They, they deceive your hearts. They sound good. They even sound convincing. They even, as a matter of fact, may have some proof text to come behind what they say. And you go, oh, yeah, yeah. But then what you come to find out is if you take those texts and, and you start examining them against the whole of Scripture, you see some problems. Or you see that this, con this text is pulled out of context and they're really abusing the teaching of Scripture. Paul was very serious about this. It's why when it came down to it, when Paul defends his ministry, he speaks of this very thing. 
In, in 2 Corinthians 2.17, he, he reminds them that they focus on the gospel alone in their ministry. He says, for we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak Christ. Paul says, listen, our, our desire is to speak Christ. We're not just peddling God's word for our own good. We're not just out here saying some things to make you feel good and to say, oh, he's a great Christian, and, and then deceiving you and leading you down an ungodly, unbiblical path. In 2 Corinthians 4.2, Paul says, We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Paul says, listen, I, I'm proclaiming the truth. There is an open statement of truth. You can examine what I'm saying. Examine it against Scripture. I am not seeking to be disgraceful. I'm not seeking to be underhanded. I'm not seeking to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word, to adjust it and to make it fit into what I want it to say. That is not me. I am proclaiming truth to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Hold me up to Scripture, Paul's saying, essentially. Paul's desire was to proclaim Christ, to point people to Christ, not to himself. So in Colossians 2.4, after he states that it is in Christ that all the treasures and wisdom and knowledge are found, he says this prior to what he talks about in 2.8 that we read, he says this, that all those are found in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. That it is in Christ in which all wisdom is found. It is Christ, the wonderful mystery of the gospel that's been revealed and is, a, uh, is not an unknown mystery. It is a mystery in which we look and we are blown away. In which we say, come behold the wondrous mystery of God's amazing grace. And we long for that. We look to that. We look to the scripture. Why? So that no one would deceive us, delude you with plausible arguments. Paul's concern is that we stand firm in the faith. Listen, we live in a day in which it is very easy to flip on social media, YouTube, TV, and find all kinds of very gifted speakers. We, we live in a day in which it is very easy to find a very dynamic speaker who really makes you feel good, who can really drive home the points, who's a real wordsmith. Especially in the days of, of COVID where so many people are confined to home or have been at home. Some people have just gotten comfortable and maybe they don't have to be there. They've chosen to be there and getting comfortable and they've become consumers of, of nice sermons. And we live in a day in which that is a genuine and a true threat and a danger to, that you would just fall after a wordsmith and just listen to them because they are a great communicator. And in the midst of that great communication, they are sowing seeds of deceit and undermining biblical doctrine, undermining your faith in Scripture, and will eventually cause division among you and the body of Christ that you're a part of. We live in a day in which that is easy. We must be discerning. We must not be led astray by smooth talk and flattery. Now, what are we to do then? What does Paul tell us to do when we come across these people? This is this is hidden in the text. It's really hard for you to discern and see it. See if you can find it in verse 17. Watch out for them. I don't know. This is really tough. Do you see it? <laughs> Avoid them. 
right? This isn't difficult, guys. Read your Bible. I appeal to you, brothers, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you have been taught. Avoid them. Black and white. Paul is very blunt. He says to avoid them. Now, listen, you need to understand this. Avoiding them is not the same as hating them or being angry at them. I can avoid them and still pray for them, weep over them, and evangelize them. I can still call them to sound doctrine. I can call them to the Scriptures. It's not like if you avoid them, you all of a sudden are shunning them and you want nothing of them and you don't desire that they come to sound belief and trust the gospel and follow Christ. That's not the case. So why should we avoid them? Why, Paul? Why should we avoid them? Here's, here's two reasons. One reason we've already seen is, is that, that it would guard us from stumbling. We avoid them so that we're guarded from stumbling. We don't go and we don't sit under their teaching and go, wow, this is some strange and different teaching. I want to sit and hear more. And we avoid them. We say, I'm not hearing that. I'm not listening to that. I'm stepping back from that. I'm not subjecting myself to that teaching because I'm not going to stumble in my faith. The second reason that we avoid them is that they may be saved, that they might come to right belief, that they might trust Christ in faith. We see this in in 1 Corinthians 5, 5, when the, there's an issue of sin, an issue of one who is living in immorality, and, and the people have kind of embraced it, and they're along, going along with it. And, and the reason that Paul says you need to separate this one from among you, it says you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Discipline. Avoid so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. In 1 Timothy 1.20, Paul handed over Hymenaeus and Alexander to Satan. And the reason is, he says, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Ultimately, when we do that and we step back, we avoid or we discipline. The goal is restoration. The goal is the salvation of their souls. We can still avoid love, pray, evangelize all at the same time. Now, in verse 19, Paul calls us to wisdom and innocence. He calls us to wisdom and innocence. And, and before we look at this, I want to make sure that you understand that what we're talking about today is very, very real. This is not some type of theoretical, let's talk about this as though it's real, but it's not really out there. Let's just know that we need to guard against false doctrine, but it's probably not going to come among us. Well, if that's where you are, you're wrong. Let me, let me give you a few examples of things going on today. Let me give you the example of, I, actually, God's providence is just amazing. Had two people contact me this week about the same church. I'm not going to tell you the name of the church, but at this church, pastors decided that really doesn't believe in God. He's very dynamic, very winsome, influential. They have a statement. You know what their statement is about the Bible? The Bible 
is not the Word of God, they say. You know what the Bible is? It's a product of community. The Bible is not an answer or a rule book. Instead, they say the Bible is a human response to God. And they say the Bible is not inerrant or infallible. But it is living and dynamic. I find that one really interesting. It's not the Word of God. It's not inerrant and infallible, but it's living and dynamic. How in the world can it be living and dynamic if it's not the very Word of God? You see, this, this church is inviting people in to say, hey, you know what, you, you have a particular love for the Lord, it seems. Why don't you, let, why don't you come to this special teaching? And this church has set aside right doctrine. And it's following after an idea of inclu- inclusiveness. That we're going to just welcome everybody in. And we're going to divorce ourselves of sound biblical doctrine and biblical teaching. The Bible doesn't have answers. It doesn't show us what it means to live a holy life. It's just man's response. And it's formed by the community. This is false doctrine, people. This is a false church. This is what Paul's warning us against. Or you want another example? What about all the leaders in the Methodist denomination who are affirming same-sex marriage and sexuality that is contrary to the clear teaching of Scripture? Do you know about this? Thanks be to God for Methodist brothers and sisters who are standing against that, who have boldly said we are not going that way, we are going to stand on God's word, so much so that there will be a new Methodist denomination. Because they are committed to God's word. Are they a little different than us? Do they believe a little different than Southern Baptists? Yes. Are they committed to the Lord? Yes. And they are standing on Scripture. Thanks be to God for them. But this is going on in their denomination. A difficult time. Or what about our cancel culture? Have you thought about that one? How you're told that if anyone has committed any kind of sin in the past or anything, that you cancel the entirety of their work and them as a person. They are no longer any good. Do you not see that seeping into the church? Do you not see how that can undermine Scripture? You know what Scripture says? You know what, what Paul says in Colossians? Oh, there, there's cancel. There's canceling in Christianity. But it's very different than cancel culture. Cancel culture says you have committed a sin, you've made a mistake, and we're canceling you. You know what Scripture says? Listen, listen what Scripture says when, when Paul talks about in Colossians 2, and he, he says, hey, don't let anybody take you captive by empty philosophy, by empty deceit, by human tradition, by elemental spirits of the world, not according to Christ. He says, 
in whom the fullness of deity dwells bodily. You have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now listen to what he says. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your faith, God, or flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us of all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Christ cancels sin. He does not cancel you. You understand that? That's the gospel that we would come and we would say, I am a wretched sinner. I have no righteousness of my own. I am lost. I am helpless. I am dead in my trespasses and sin. But God makes us alive together with Christ and he takes our sin and he cancels the record of debt that stood against you, nails it to the cross, gives you life that you can pursue Christ, live for Christ, live in faith, made alive in Christ. He redeems the sinner. He does not cancel the sinner. You see, that false methodology, that false philosophy can seep into, sneak into the church. We don't have time to name them all. But you need to beware of all kinds of man-based ideas and philosophies that can sneak into the church and undermine your doctrine. You need to be aware of things such as the Equality Act, the seeking to undermine biblical teaching, this human tradition. You need to be aware of what's going on about conversion therapy. You need to be aware of critical theory. You need to know what you believe. You need to know the truth of Scripture, that you would not be deceived by false doctrine and those who would seek to cause division among God's people. Let me just give you, in closing, six, six ways that we can be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. So Paul says, be, be wise to what is good. He says, your obedience is known to all. He He's affirming them. He's, he says, I rejoice over you. Right? He says, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. How do we do that? How, how, how do we walk in wisdom to what is good? Knowing what is good. Knowing what is right. Knowing what is sound. But yet, innocent of what is evil. Innocent of false doctrine. What would bring division, dissension among us. And cause us to be burdened by obstacles to the gospel. How do we do that? Here's the first way. Don't assume that because something is popular, it is right and true. Don't assume that just because it's popular that you hear it over and over again, that you see posts about it, that you see everybody talking about it, that all of the polls and statistics say the majority believe this, that it is right and true. Don't assume that. In 2 Timothy 3, 4, we're, or, uh, 2 Timothy, sorry, 4, verses 3 and 4, we're warned. Paul says, 
the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Paul's warned us. He said, listen, the time is coming when, when people are going to look for people who will tickle their ears, who will help them just listen or, or give them what they want to hear. They, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. You see that all over the place. Well, I, wa- I want to do this. This is what I think, and this is what I feel. And so I'm going to find somebody who will say what I want them to say. I'm going to find some people that will teach me something that makes me feel okay about the sin I'm living in. Don't assume that just because something's popular that it's right and true. Well, there'll be a lot of people who flock after false teachers. We must stand on the truth of Scripture. The second way. Second way to be wise to what is good and innocent to what is evil is test what people say about Jesus. Test what they say about Christ. In 1 John 4, 1 to 3, John writes, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. What do they say about Christ? Do they hold to sound biblical teaching about who Christ is? That he is truly God, truly man, fully God, fully man? Do they hold that it is through Christ and Christ alone that one is saved? They hold that Christ was the eternal triune God. He was one person of the Trinity. Or do they hold that he was created? What do they hold? What do they believe about Christ? What do they say about Christ? That will tell you a lot. Third way. Third way. Is be careful to grow in Christ. Be careful to grow in Christ. uh, Peter in 2 Peter 3, verses 17 to 18, says this. He says, Take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter says, Don't get carried away by lawlessness. Don't get carried away by the error of those who live contrary to, to sound doctrine. Don't lose your own stability. But, instead, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Grow in Christ. Be careful to grow in Christ. Are you careful to grow in Christ? Are you doing what it takes to to learn more and to to know more of who Christ is? Or do you come and just kind of listen and then roll on out? Grow in Christ. Be careful to grow in Christ. Fourth, measure All messages, teaching, and counsel you receive by Scripture. Measure all messages, teaching, and counsel you receive by Scripture. When you sit here and you hear me preaching or you hear anybody else in this pulpit, you need to be sitting with your Bible open and you need to be reading and studying and looking at what is taught. You need to be examining messages, teaching, counsel. When you hear someone say, well, you know, I think this, you, there's something going on in your life, and they, they give you counsel, I really think you should do this. You need to be thinking, how does that measure up to Scripture? Does that counsel go along with Scripture? 
We need to have that, the posture of the Bereans in Acts. When, when they come and Paul proclaims the gospel, it says in Acts 17, 11, the Bereans were described as those who received the word with all eagerness. They wanted to hear the word. They enjoyed hearing the gospel. It says they were examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So they didn't just go, oh, yeah, great, wow, that's good, and then move on. They said, wow, that's great, good, and let me look at Scripture and see where that is in Scripture and make sure that what is sounding so great and so good that it is truly in the Word of God. Measure all messages, teaching, and counsel you receive by Scripture. Fifth, make sure, make sure that your elders and pastors are qualified according to Scripture instead of according to the world. You do not need to be holding me or Mike or Ricky or Matt up to the standard of the world. You need to be holding us up to the standard that you read in 1 Timothy, in Titus 1, 5 to 16. You need to be making sure that our qualifications are those that you see in Scripture that we defend and refute. We defend sound doctrine. We refute false doctrine. You need to make sure that we would turn you away from what is false and point you to what is true and right. And that goes not just for us four, but for every other pastor that comes after us in this place. You need to hear that. Listen, young people. Some of you are sitting in these chairs today. You're going to be sitting in these chairs 50 years from now. And I won't be here. And Mike and Ricky and Matt won't be here. I don't think we're going to be serving in our 90s. Or Ricky will be over 100. Sorry, Ricky. Um, we're not going to be here. Those pastors that are here, you better hold them according to Scripture. According to sound doctrine. Young people, you need to be growing in that now. Don't wait. You don't wait till you're 60, 70, 80 to figure out what the Bible says. You need to know now. You also need to know now because many of you will go to college. Many of you will leave and you'll go and you'll have to find a church to worship at in another city or you may move away. How do you know if that church is going to teach you sound doctrine? Is it because the speaker is really dynamic? Is it because the worship team is really nice? Listen, those churches can undermine sound doctrine very quickly. You need to know and you need to measure everything against Scripture. You need to look and you need to see that those pastors are biblically qualified pastors, not worldly qualified pastors. The final way, sixth, is to watch for fruit. Watch for fruit. This is the first cross-reference passage we looked at today. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 15, 16, I just want to remind you again, he said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Watch the fruit of the people who are teaching you. Watch the fruit of their lives. Do you see godliness? Do you see biblical fruit? Do you see evidence of the Spirit in their lives? Do you see them growing in in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. 
Do you see them growing? Do you see evidence of the Spirit's work in their lives? Watch their fruit. Paul, Paul says all this. He teaches all this in 17 and 18, 19. And I think he just gives a solid statement in 20 that we need to hear as we close today. He simply says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. You see the reminder that there are people who are adversaries to the gospel and sound doctrine, the church, to God himself. Where does Paul's thought jump to right away? There's adversaries, but you need to remember and you need to know that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The adversary who sends out adversaries will be defeated. He will be crushed. This is the great hope and message we have in Revelation, that Jesus wins. <laughs> we know that. Jesus wins. And Paul reminds us of that. And then he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Paul's essentially saying, God wins, Christ is with you. Be wise to what is good. Be innocent to what is evil. Watch out for people who would cause divisions. Watch out for people who would create obstacles that would draw you away from sound doctrine. Avoid them. And you need to know, God wins and Christ is with you. Never forget. Never forget. Let's pray.